So, Quinn, there's this picture of Steve Jobs from 1983. We've all seen it. It circulates every few years. And in it, Steve Jobs is standing in front of a huge IBM logo. It's etched in the side of this massive building. And Jobs is uh, giving the logo the bird. Yeah, that's a famous photo. It, it, it shows up on my Twitter feed like once a year without context. And I think it's just because it's a very handsome photo of Steve Jobs. He was a good looking young man. He was. He was. Okay, so this picture, it really does kind of sum up a real moment in time. It was snapped just a few weeks before the Macintosh was introduced in 1984. And in that announcement, Jobs took IBM on directly. I mean, we, we've all seen the ad. Like, it's as famous as time. The rivalry ran deep. Well, at least... For Apple, it did. I don't know that IBM cared that much about Apple. <laughs> it, it's like that uh, the thing from Mad Men. It's like, I feel sorry for you. I don't think mm-hmm. about you at all. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. Good evening. I'm Steve Jobs from Apple Computer. We're very glad to be here tonight. It is 1958. IBM passes up the chance to buy a young, fledgling company that has just invented a new technology called Xerography. Two years later, Xerox is born and IBM has been kicking themselves ever since. It is 10 years later, the late 60s. Digital Equipment Corporation and others invent the mini-computer. IBM dismisses the mini-computer as too small to do serious computing and therefore unimportant to their business. DEC grows to become a multi-hundred million dollar corporation before IBM finally enters the mini-computer market. It is now 10 years later, the late 70s. In 1977, Apple, a young, fledgling company on the West Coast, invents the Apple II, the first personal computer as we know it today. IBM dismisses the personal computer as too small to do serious computing and therefore unimportant to their business. The early 1980s, 1981. Apple II has become the world's most popular computer, and Apple has grown to a $300 million corporation, becoming the fastest growing company in American business history. With over 50 competitors vying for a share, IBM enters the personal computer market in November of 1981 with the IBM PC. 1983. Apple and IBM emerge as the industry's strongest competitors, each selling approximately $1 billion worth of personal computers in 1983. Each will invest greater than $50 million for research and development and another $50 million for television advertising alone in 1984, totaling almost one quarter of a billion dollars combined. The shakeout is in full swing. The first major firm goes bankrupt with others teetering on the brink. Total industry losses for 1983 outshadow even the combined profits of Apple and IBM for personal computers. It is now 1984. It appears IBM wants it all. Apple is perceived to be the only hope to offer IBM a run for its money. Dealers, initially welcoming IBM with open arms, now fear an IBM-dominated and controlled future. They are increasingly turning back to Apple as the only force that can ensure their future freedom. (laughs) IBM... (laughs) IBM wants it all and is aiming its guns on its last obstacle to industry control, Apple. Will Big Blue dominate the entire computer industry 
The entire information age was George Orwell right? computer will introduce Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984 there's some obvious theater right when we talk about this jobs like taking on IBM you know David versus Goliath kind of stuff and we will get to the IBM personal computer this whole season of flashback is about IBM's personal computer business but uh, first we need to talk about IBM itself, the International Business Machines Corporation. Hmm. Did you say that the whole season's about IBM? It is. Yeah. Oh. Doing something new this time. Yeah, I like it. You are um, a professional when it comes to IBM. I am learning a lot for the first time. So this is going to be kind of a, a trip for all of us. I am very, very excited. But as you mentioned, we must begin with the history. And so... So Jobs and others at the time, they painted IBM as this kind of massive, evil corporation threatening to swallow the computer market as a whole. And while IBM was huge by the 1980s, the company obviously didn't start that way, right? There is, there's like a hundred years of history here. So we're going to be kind of just skimming the surface today and we'll be going into greater depth over the course of flashback season three. Um, but it really all begins with the origin story. And the weird thing about IBM is it doesn't really have a defined beginning. <laughs> you see, it, it, it's really an amalgamation of four different companies that have history as early as the 1880s. Whoa, that's a long time ago. Pretty old, right? I, d I did real good in history in school. I know that the 1880s is a long time ago. <laughs> That's right. So tell me about these four companies. Okay. Well, there were four of them, right? There was the Bundy Manufacturing Company, and they made time clocks, like, you know, those things that are meant to track employees and whether or not they're there and everything. Yeah. Do you like punch in at the beginning of your shift, punch out yep. at the end of it. Yep, exactly. There was the Tabulating Machine Company, and they made the first punch card-based processing machine. So punch cards, for those of uh, you who are younger than me... Um, <laughs> So probably not many. Uh, just kidding. I'm old now. They don't know what these are. Punch cards are literally thick pieces of paper. They're cards. And they had holes that were punched into them that were arranged such that the holes and not holes represented digital data, but in a physical form. But basically, it's like the first floppy disk or, or hard yeah. drive, but yeah. on, on paper. On paper. Yeah. And they obviously didn't hold that much data because these <laughs> no. were fairly large holes on a fairly small card. But yeah. But yeah. <laughs> so you had them. You had the International Time Recording Company, and they created the idea of a timesheet, which is basically just like a spreadsheet of time spent by an employee on specific tasks. So Mike Hurley, basically like time tracking extraordinaires. Sure. 
And then you have the Computing Scale Company of America, and they made early money weight scales. Now, we don't really use that anymore, but when you go to the deli in the grocery store and they throw all your meat on a scale to figure out what the price of the product is and they print out the little barcode, that's a money weight scale. And so it's a scale, but it also allows you to uh, define the cost per pound, and then it finds out the total of what you're supposed to pay. That's a money scale, and the ones we have now are new and digital, but the Computing Scale Company of America, they made old-school mechanical analog money weight scales for grocery stores. So in 1911 or so, these four companies kind of came together to form a new company, and guess what they named it? What do they call it? Something sexy, right? The Computing-Tabulating-Recording Company. Well, not super it the, exciting. It was the early 1900s. You know? Also, poor Bundy Manufacturing guess got left out of the name. The, yeah, they did. <laughs> the other three they got did. their got their name in there. They're like, you only make time clocks. That's easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, this was uh, pulled off by Charles Flint. Uh, he had owned the title of the father of trusts. That's a pretty good thing to put on a business card, I feel like. Uh, he had yeah. brought a bunch of companies together to form U.S. Rubber, uh, which is now Uniroyal, which is now part of the Michelin Group, like the tire company. Yeah, Uniroyal was like a big deal for a long time. U.S. Rubber, I I didn't know, but when I saw that they were Uniroyal, I was like, oh. So they were a big deal too. Mm -hmm. I mean, not not IBM, but big deal. So he had uh, a rubber tire company and also Mm -hmm. uh, he had gathered up a bunch of small chewing gum companies and put them together. You don't want big, to get the factories big, mixed up there. Yeah, you don't want to <laughs> don't want to go against big gum, you know. <laughs> and so CTR, Computing Tabulating Recording Company, that was really just a holdings company. So the all four of those companies that you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, they could continue to use their established names and brands and make what you know what they were known for. They just sort of had this operating umbrella over them. Yeah, they were like really loosely organized. Um, And and part of that was probably the era, right? (laughs) I mean, this is the early 1900s. There's not excellent forms of communication. These companies are, none of them are in the same state. They're in the same region. Um, They're all back east, but they're not like particularly close. And so they kind of just a little laissez-faire, like, you know what you're supposed to do? Just keep doing your thing. Mm And we'll be good. But one of these companies, it really stood out more than the others. And that is the Tabulating Machine Company, right? The one with the, the punch cards. And that company had largely kept itself alive with government contracts to help the rapidly and um, kind of sprawling populace of the United States. Um, and and they did that by, well, helping the government perform censuses. Oh. So. Yeah, so they used punch cards to track census data, and the tabulating machine company had won two census bids, um, one in the late 1800s and one in the year 1900 for the censuses that took place during those time periods. And and obviously, the machines made them way faster and more accurate than doing them by hand. I wonder if the census still runs on punch cards today. It honestly might. (laughs) No, it's just it runs on COBOL instead. (laughs) Uh, so there's one more pre-IBM yeah. topic when you talk about, and that's about this guy known as Thomas J. Watson. Who's that? Well, he was born in the 1870s, which again, I remember from college, is a long time ago. 
<laughs> and in his early professional life, uh, he worked at NCR, the National Cash Register. I wonder what they made. Mm. I think probably cash I don't know. registers. Uh, oh. They're still around. NCR is still in business today. If you have inserted or tapped your credit card, basically anywhere, it could have been an NCR point of sale terminal. So yeah. another company that has totally evolved and changed over the, the course of more than 100 years. Pretty wild, right? Yeah, it's totally wild. You, you think our businesses will be around in 140 years? Uh, Relay FM will be a pinnacle of media in 140 years. Snazzy Laughs will be long gone. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know. <laughs> uh, Watson was a very shrewd businessman, but he was he was kind of a punk. He had a little bit of edge to him. So mm. he had been uh, assigned the Rochester, New York region to sell cash registers. It was not a big market for NCR, so they were looking at him mm-hmm. to, to grow their presence there. But he was totally ruthless, and in just a few years, he had taken this region where NCR was not big and basically turned it into a monopoly for NCR. They were just everywhere. <laughs> There's even reports that he would go in and sabotage competitors' machines, and turns <laughs> out that that is a great way to get promoted, uh, but also a great way to get arrested and spend time in jail. So, in, Whoopsie doodle. in 1912, Watson and a bunch of other executives at NCR were found guilty of breaching the Sherman Antitrust Act for illegal and anti-competitive sales practices. You can't go in and disable your competitor's machine and then go sell them one of your working ones. And uh, he was they were all sentenced for one year in prison. That's kind of cool. The government worked back then. Yeah. It was all on punch cards, baby. (laughs) That's right. Well, Watson and the rest of NCR, they were actually pretty generally revered by the public, especially in those regions, because they had helped with like flood efforts. And they're actually a pretty good corporate citizen. And so they were well liked. I think they were good employers. And so there was uh, quite a bit of... Uh, frustration and upheaval uh, surrounding their arrests. Hmm. And the sending scenes were extremely unpopular. In fact, it was such a big deal that President Woodrow Wilson, so the U.S. president, he attempted to pardon the men, (laughs) but he was not able to do it successfully, which Hmm. is interesting because now anyone can be pardoned for anything pretty much. Yeah, I think that's really changed over the years. Mm -hmm. So our friend, Charles Flint, remember that guy? Yeah, what's he doing? Yeah, the CTR guy. Yeah, well, he was kind of having a tough time managing these four separate companies in four different regions, and he needed help. So he hired Watson as a general manager right as soon as Watson got out of prison (laughs) in uh, 1914. And after his prison sentence, they were still kind of figuring out some legal stuff. But within the year, um, once the legal stuff was resolved, he escalated to the title of president. So Hmm. pretty big position and pretty quickly. And in 1915, Watson even came up with the slogan, Think, which is still a major part of IBM's corporate branding and has been for the last well, 100 years. And, uh, you know, the IBM Watson computer that plays Jeopardy and stuff? Yeah, of course. Well, that's obviously, now it might dawn on you that that's named after the man himself, Mr. Uh, Mr. Watson. That's cool. I want a supercomputer named after me when after I'm dead. Yeah, me too. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, like the Quinn, mm. maybe. I was going to like the Hackett 4000. You know? Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think that really speaks to uh, Watson's reputation, like you said, right? That they were, like this group, even though they had run into this legal trouble, were 
well respected and i'm sure there was part of this of like hey this guy's like a ruthless business person we need him to yeah. help us grow and organize our thing yeah so you know you may raise an eyebrow but i think it I think it makes sense so how did he do he did a great job so in less than four years he had been able to double revenues to more than nine million dollars annually remember this is like 1918 1919 yeah, it's a lot of that's money crazy money and then in 1924, he, re- he renamed CTR to International Business Machines, IBM, oh. and, and basically took these four companies, you know, you described as sort of like loose siblings, not really interacting with each other all that much, not sharing resources all that much. And he basically drew them tighter together into a more unified single corporation. Okay. So in the 1920s, that's a pretty good time to start a business, right? I mean, there is this thing coming. (laughs) Spoiler alert. The Great Depression happened. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So as with any company through the early depression, IBM had its share of initial struggles. However, uh, Watson and the company were generally, they were lauded for their work. In fact, the company kind of contrary to what was common for the time continued to invest in people and manufacturing and innovation um not only did they not lay people off but they actually increased staff during the depression and they increased benefits too um and ibm kind of expanded beyond that they were among the first of companies to provide life uh, group life insurance for employees and survivor benefits for family members Um, and they also during the depression introduced paid vacations that's awesome. Which is like, what? I want to work for 1920s IBM. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. What's vacation? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so this kind of continues, right? And it's the depression, so things are not going super well. But Watson is just ruthless and and hellbent on betting the future of the company on just making this thing work. It was a it was kind of a, a crazy strategy. It could have ended in disaster, but luckily it didn't. Um, during the depression, they built a new factory and they were educating their engineers in-house. They started like this school for training and education. They helped foster innovation. They hired university professors, like pretty crazy stuff. And then they kind of ran full tilt in this new factory for six years, making a huge excess of tabulation equipment for nobody. <laughs> they, they had no customers. And you're kind of like, well, what's the game plan? And I actually don't know. But luckily, in 1935, when the Social Security Act was uh, kind of introduced and labeled as, quote, the biggest accounting operation of all time, end quote, there was literally only one company that was ready to provide the equipment and service to the federal government. And that was IBM. Wow. Uh, it paid off for Watson. Like, <laughs> Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. He, he, he was praised for his foresight, his management, post-depression, you know, as the world sort of recovered. He continued to rapidly expand into international markets because in his eyes, I think this is really interesting, he viewed things like commerce and business, mm-hmm. like those things could push back against things like war and human strife. So I think he had this real like mission mind that what they were doing mattered, you know, far beyond just, you know, counting holes punched in cards. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact... Um, he kind of had a, a slogan, world peace through world trade, that was such a tightly held belief that it was actually carved into the exterior of IBM's new 
world headquarters in New York City in 1938. So he totally believed that that business and diplomacy were directly intertwined. Here's the thing that doesn't always pan out for the best, turns out. <laughs> yeah. And that brings us to a quick bit on World War II. Uh, this is obviously a, a very complicated part of IBM's history. Yeah. There's a book called IBM and the Holocaust. I'll have a link in the show notes. That, uh, is If you're interested in going deeper, I think it is, uh, it's worth the read. It's, it's a tough read, as you may imagine, mm, but it explains sure. this uh, in greater detail. But basically, IBM, a U.S. company, had a subsidiary in Germany. And it turns mm-hmm. out that was the company's most profitable foreign operation. So Germany is very important to their portfolio. In 1937, Watson is there and has a meeting with the German leader, you know, the guy with the mustache. Oh. Um, and basically Watson's pursuit of profit and, and maybe some of that diplomacy stuff too. Maybe he thought, if I have a foot in the door with this Nazi party, maybe I can influence. Um, I don't really know. I don't want to assign valor to him that he may not uh, deserve. Sure. But he was approved basically to work with the Nazi government and headed a strategic technical relationship with them between IBM's German subsidiary and Nazi Germany. In part, Watson might have been lured in by some of the accolades that he had received Mm. as a result of this partnership. Um, So not only initially was he kind of lauded by the US because it was a company that was kind of getting its foot in with the door and and could frankly in the future be used as a backdoor, but also because the Nazis themselves were giving him recognition. So Watson ended up getting an award called Order of the German Eagle, which is this huge, yeah, this huge award given by the Nazi party, big deal. And uh, yeah, now there's some people that believe Watson's involvement was intentional and it was malicious. There's other people that believe that Watson thought naively that this award was in recognition of his years of labor um, in pursuit of global commerce and international peace. But in either case, it's not really a good look. (laughs) There's a a story that by 1940, Watson is standing up. He's uh, protesting Germany's treatment of the Jewish people. He attempts to return the medal to the Nazis against the advice of the Secretary of State. It's also a story in this time that the German arm of IBM disapproved of Watson's involvement and threatened to separate from IBM. Uh, And... The, the, the problem is that that's really not all true, right? Yeah. So Edwin Black in his detail, IBM in the, uh, in his book, IBM in the Holocaust, details a lot of this. And a lot of recent research in the last 40 years tells really uh, a different story, right? Yeah, I mean, the story initially was that Watson's like, oh, no, this is bad, and tries to separate, and that you know, the, the the Third Reich takes over the German subsidiary and that that's kind of where IBM's involvement ends. But yeah, not really true. Um, <laughs> uh, so for starters, um, you know, in this book, Edwin Black details that the seizure of the German subsidiary, it was kind of a ruse. And he actually goes on to say, quote, the company was not looted, at least its machines they were not seized, and IBM continued to receive money funneled through its subsidiary in Geneva because um, they were working through Switzerland because it was a neutral party. 
The evidence also alleges that IBM was an active and enthusiastic supplier to the regime long after they should have broken ties. And even after the invasion of Poland, IBM continues to service and expand services to the Third Reich in Poland and Germany. Gosh. Yeah. And it's reported that IBM's other European subsidiaries, they never stopped supplying punch cards to the Nazis and that senior executives in New York City went to great lengths to maintain legal authority over the German subsidy, even after it had allegedly been taken over by the Third Reich. And their involvement was kind of masked. Stuff was kept under ties. Basically, really, really, really not good. Yeah, that's that's unforgivable. I mean, to the extent that the, the tabulation machines, you know, the stuff that IBM had created and sold to the U.S. government to manage social security, that those were in use in Germany to keep track mm-hmm. of people in concentration camps. IBM definitely played both sides of this. Um, that's not to say they yeah. also didn't aid the U.S. and its allies. Yeah. But, boy, they're... <laughs> Uh, their actions in Europe in World War II are uh, horrific. Because of what their tabulation machines did and how good they were at tracking data of people, that's inherently what made them valuable to countries like Nazi Germany and, frankly, even the United States during the Japanese internment during World War II. So, yeah, not good. This is undoubtedly kind of a dark decade or two uh, for IBM in their otherwise generally really impressive history. And I suppose the question could be like, why wasn't more done as a result of IBM's involvement? Right. And we don't get political on the show, right? But if 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 I might just suggest the following, IBM was, and it's weird to think about now because they're they're not what they were, but they were America's sweetheart. I mean, they were one of the most innovative companies in the world. They were a massive employer and they were very close to the US government from censuses to military efforts, later to NASA. Um, And in 1944, near the end of World War II, um, they released the Mark I, which is this machine, this supercomputer, one of the first of its kind, that's used to aid in war efforts, simulating the potential fallout of the Manhattan Project, atomic bombs. And so there's just indispensable value to the United States government. And so it's reasonable to assume that some of the things that they otherwise might have gotten trouble for were kind of swept under the rug just because they were so important to the U.S.'s success. And um, it's kind of why it seems they were untouchable for so long up until frankly, antitrust stuff, which we'll talk about later, but they got away with a lot of stuff for a long time just because they were unique and they were the only company that did what they did for a long time. And that was worth a lot. Yeah. I know particularly in the, in the days of the space race. Oh yeah. Separating IBM and NASA like took a pretty fine tooth comb to do so. And obviously that was true in, in all different parts of the, of the U S government. And yeah, I think that probably did give them some some cover to, to do some of these things and, and have the U.S. maybe look the other way, but it's not how it should have gone down. No. We're going to take a break. We're going to leave or two behind for the rest of the season <laughs> because we're moving forward. <laughs> uh, but I want to tell you about our sponsor, and that is Clean My Mac X. Quinn, you should be able to rely on your computer. Do you agree? Yeah. That sounds pretty good. That'd be nice. It should be in good enough shape to get you to your goals. It should be fast and organized, and working on it should be like a dream. But that's not always the case. And if you're a macOS user, you need to check out Clean My Mac X from MacPaw, who are diligent Mac developers many in the Mac community trust. 
Clean My Mac X is an ideal decluttering app for the Mac. It has all of these different uh, modules in it. So 49 tools to find and delete invisible computer junk. It can tune up your Mac to run at its maximum speed. You can use it to organize disk space and reveal large hidden folders. Plus, you can free up tons of space so your Mac never runs into issues with storage again. And it fights Mac-specific malware and adware to protect your computer. Clean My Mac X is notarized by Apple, so it's been checked out from a security standpoint by Apple. And it is a beautiful application. It really stands out on the design front, and it's just enjoyable to use because of it. So get Clean My Mac X today with a 5% discount at macpaw.app slash flashback. This discount is only valid for two weeks, so jump on it. macpaw.app slash flashback for 5% off. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. Our thanks to Clean My Mac X for their support of Flashback and Relay FM. Okay, we need, we're going to jump a little bit to sort of the mainframe era. So the Depression, World War II, even the 50s, a lot of what IBM was doing and a lot of what was going on in computing was punch card and tabulation, making right. simple math and ca- you know uh, counting, making that more uh, efficient and more accurate. But mm-hmm. by the time we get to the 1960s, we are entering the, the time of the mainframe. And IBM had some computers before this, but really the System 360 uh, introduced in the early 1960s to me, this is really like the landmark in terms of mainframes becoming more like general purpose computers. So before this, you would have a mainframe and it was built to really do one or two things. What they did with the System 360, which is just a cool name, by the way. It is like, way cool. Way cool. Everything about mainframes is cool. Like we have, we have a bunch of links in the show notes. Go look at pictures. Go look at the videos. They're amazing. So the company had a a range of models that had different performance capabilities, but they were all running the same instruction set. So say that you had just small needs in the beginning. If you need to upgrade to a more capable mainframe or add accessories or add capabilities, Mm -hmm. you could do so without rewriting your entire software stack, which was a a big deal at the time. Yeah, this this might not seem like really anything special today (laughs) in our world of kind of progressive web apps, uh, cross-platform game engines and more. But in in 1965, when the system 360 first shipped, it was a a really big deal. Um, And it helped turn computers into generalists with with kind of a single line being able to address both specific business and scientific applications. And it, it really expanded their usability beyond basic counting. Uh, at the heart of all of this was IBM's solid logic technology. And the, there's a YouTube link in the show notes that shows them like putting it together. This is such a cool video. You have to watch it. Yeah, I, I do. I fell real down the rabbit hole of like mainframe YouTube videos. And now that's the only <laughs> yeah. thing it suggests to me. <laughs> yep. Fine with it. <laughs> totally fine. Uh, so this was a new method of combining transistors, diodes, and resistors on a ceramic substrate. And so basically you had these little modules and then from there, IBM could create cards with you know multiple pieces, multiple little processing units, and then plug those cards into the computer itself. So again, you could upgrade over time, and it made things like repairability 
much easier because you could track down the problem to a card or a module, take it out, replace it, and be back up and running. And, and in this video, when announcing System 360, IBM praises this solid logic technology SLT for its miniaturization and its density, which is funny because in today's worlds where we, you know, where we're talking about process shrinks all the time, which allow modern processors to run faster and cooler and use less energy, there is a very similar parallel in this video. So, you know, <laughs> not much changes, I guess. But the, the company's very clearly proud of this massive breakthrough. And if you watch this video that we have in our show notes, you'll really get a good look about how IBM assembled these components. Um, it's amazing that they were building computers this capable when their cameras were so awful. <laughs> Not everything evolves at the same rate is what we're saying. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so let's talk about memory. The amount of uh, core memory available to the System 360 was available up to 8 million characters or about 8 megabytes. Which is insanity. That was totally bananas at the time. You know when they were at the Mac Pro, it's like a terabyte and a half of RAM and all of us, like our jaws hit the floor? This is, mm -hmm. what pe this is what people did when you said 8 megabytes with the System 360. Uh, and it was ridiculously expensive. And so most installations had 512K, 768K, maybe a megabyte of memory. But you had the option to, to upgrade. And the flexible nature of the System 360 is, is what let customers move from small, simple machines to larger, more powerful ones as they needed. There was an upgrade path, which is important considering the cost of, of the system. <laughs> you know, it's a different time in computing, right? You're not sitting down executing your program directly most of the time. You had remote mm -hmm. terminals. And of course, IBM had a range of other devices, different types of storage drives, printers, punch card processors. Uh, system 360 was kind of like a Lego set. And you could just pick yeah. the components you needed and, and bundle them together and if you had a System 360, IBM promised that your business records, automation, calculations, everything not only would be faster than before and more available than ever before, but it also could be used from more than one location, which is another big yeah. deal, big step forward. Oh, for sure. And, and models of the System 360, they obviously, uh, you know, the, their, their cost of entry was quite high. And so they didn't find adoption into kind of mid and small size businesses for a while, but they did find themselves in some pretty interesting places. And I'm going to guess that Stephen's favorite is uh, the System 360 Model 91 that was installed at uh, NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in uh, the late 60s, 1968. Yeah. Um, at the time, it was the most powerful computer in user operation. And it's a moon computer. <laughs> <laughs> send people to the moon with it. Yeah, pretty cool. NASA, like we said earlier, NASA and IBM, two peas in a pod in the 1960s. IBM built components for the Gemini and Apollo spacecraft. The computer that ran the Saturn V, the giant rocket, all IBM. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, as early as 1963, even before the System 360, IBM employees and computers helped NASA track the orbital flights of the Mercury astronauts. So right from the beginning, crewed spaceflight and IBM, like, they were just together. And in 1970, 
after all that boring space stuff, right? <laughs> like we even landed on the moon, right? Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. IBM announces the System 370, which admittedly does not sound as cool as the System 360, Mm-mm. in my opinion. But uh, it's an updated line of mainframes. And what's interesting about them is that they retain backwards compatibility with the 360 um, as had the 360 with previous IBM machines. Um, and this line introduced several new technologies over the next, really, frankly, 20 years that it was sold, including semiconductor main memory, um, increased ad- uh, address spaces, and the ability to run more advanced applications, including virtualized machines, which we still do very much a lot of today. And IBM is still in the mainframe business today. I mean, you may think mainframes, and you think, this era, mm-hmm. uh, but we will get to that in a episode later this season. We promise. The new ones are, are not quite as cool. There's not as many. No, they don't have as many seats. You know, mainframes are big on having because things took a long time. You need like a padded cushion. To way sit on. way fewer way fewer lights. Uh, <laughs> now there's boring LEDs. I want I want wood on the side of my computer. <laughs> is what I'm saying. I, that could come back in the future, frankly. Because maybe it, the new Mac look. Pro will be made out of uh, made out of maple. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about what comes next, shrinking the computer. Because just as IBM was able to take advantage of shrinking components for its System 360 line of mainframes, the rest of the computer industry, well, turns out they were seeing benefit to smaller, less expensive parts as well. Yeah, so while this is going on, when the shift is beginning to happen, IBM's presence is just overwhelming. So they are dominating in business, they're dominating in higher education, they're dominating in the scientific world, and U.S. regulators begin to notice this. And so in 1969, what the old Sherman Antitrust Act, remember that, back from the <laughs> beginning? <laughs> yeah. yeah, something our buddy Watson's familiar with, huh? <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that comes back, and IBM says, or the government says, IBM is in violation of the Antitrust Act by monopolizing and attempting to monopolize the general purpose electronic digital computer system market. Mm. That's a mouthful. Yeah. And while not under an order to do so, the threat of this led IBM to unbundle some of its software and service offerings. And 13 years later, the case was dropped entirely. Wow, proactive action by a corporation upon threat of antitrust behavior? (laughs) Anyway... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I got some app store dust in my throat. <laughs> right? Mm, here. Uh, I was going to come up with a 30% joke, but it just didn't work. No, that's cool. <laughs> we keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> so some of this technology invented at IBM, it's still with us today. Yeah. Things like the Magstripe used on the back of your credit card, um, that's IBM tech. We do, frankly, use those less frequently, and thank goodness. Um, But something more common, um, dynamic random access memory, or DRAM, um, that came out of Big Blue, um, as did the core technology at the heart of the floppy disk. So IBM just had kind of innovation after innovation after innovation. But let's get back to computers for a second, okay? As early as 1962, when they're sort of wrapping up development on the System 360, they're getting ready to introduce it, uh, the term personal computer shows up, which is just Mm -hmm. a a wild set of words in the early 1960s, right? You may have a mainframe for your entire nationwide company. Personal computer, I mean, it's it's like nonsense, right? Yeah. 
It's like a flying car. That's right. We're right around the corner, I think, on that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, an early reference to the personal computer was made by John Mockley, who had co-designed the first general purpose electronic digital computer. So it, it's not like this stuff was of pipe dreams, right? As kind of throughout the 70s, research was being done all over the place on ways to bring this high technology of the mainframe down to less expensive, smaller, easier to manufacture masses. Um, and Intel, you ever heard of them? Yeah, they used to make CPUs, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. They kind of gave up on that, I think, but just kidding. They were shipping the first microprocessors. Uh, Xerox Park, which famously um, influenced Apple fairly heavily, was working on fundamental elements like like the GUI, uh, the, the, the idea of using a mouse and high-speed networking. And, you know, there's just so much going on. And there are hundreds of co- thousands of computer companies popping up all over the place, mostly in Texas, but all over the place. Yeah, all of these pieces were beginning to to come together, right? In 1975, sort of the first shoe drops with the Altair 8800. I got one a couple years ago, by the way. It's a blue box full of switches. You have one? Uh, it was built around the Intel 8080 CPU, but basically it was just a box full of blinking lights and switches. Yeah, with lights. Mm-hmm. And, until Microsoft comes along. Uh, with their Mm. basic and that's a story for like a different time but 1975 basically the start of microsoft's software business Uh, and again microsoft and ibm are going to cross paths in a future episode so by the late 1970s several companies are out there shipping machines that look much more like the personal computers of today Um, you've got commodore um, with the pet you've got radio shack with the trash 80 that was not the real name it was the trs 80 but it earned its name. And uh, I have one. It's awful. Emo Quinn. Even, even 50 years later, I'm like, well, I can see why people hated this thing. <laughs> and then, <laughs> but it was cheap. And that's all that matters. It was cheap. Uh, and then there was this little company called Apple. And they had the Apple II. These computers, right, they're, they're primitive by today's standards. But what they did was they allowed a normal person to sit down and command a computer entirely on their own, which, which previous to this was not a thing. Right. And even if you did work um, with with mainframes, the, the amount of training and the amount of know-how required was substantial. And uh, BASIC and a bunch of other stuff made computers just more accessible to regular people. And IBM and you know, the other companies that are serving the needs of businesses, governments, higher education, they didn't really seem too concerned about this at first. I think a lot of them wrote it off as like, well, these are these are video games, they're toys. But by 1981, that had changed. Apple and others were making mountains of money, and IBM didn't want to be left behind. Yep. So in 2001, Steve Jobs gets on stage and introduces the iPod. I think we skipped Uh, some stuff. Oh, okay. Well, the next episode, I guess we'll talk about how IBM tried to enter the personal computer market and moved to take it over, or maybe failed to take it over. Stay tuned. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you want to find links to the stuff we spoke about y'all you've got to go watch these videos uh links are in the show notes or on the web at relay.fm slash flashback slash 21 the hardest url i ever have to read is for a flashback episode <laughs> uh while you're there you can send us an email with feedback or follow-up or you can find us online quinn where do you reside on the internet oh i'm kind of like a disease i'm everywhere 
wow. you can find me on all really? the socials during the pandemic. <laughs> well, no, I'm not a, yeah, you can find me, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram and on Snapchat and whatever. I'm not on TikTok. I won't join at snazzy Q and you can find me on YouTube where my thoughts are more coherent and more put together. And that is at youtube.com slash snazzy. And you're, if you're listening to this in real time in October 2021, I suspect you're going to have a lot of MacBook Pro stuff here pretty soon. Oh, so much. Um, I have four more days before my life ends. But it will really begin because <laughs> this is a dawn of a new era. <laughs> <laughs> the System 360 of laptops. That's right. You can find me on Twitter as ISMH, and I host a bunch of other shows here on Relay FM, including Connected and Mac Power Users, and I write over at 512pixels.net. Uh, if you're into tech podcasts, and you probably are because you're listening to one, go mm-hmm. check out our friends Dan and Micah at Clockwise. Uh, it's a show that's out every week. It's just 30 minutes long. They have two guests, four tech topics. They go in a circle. It's fantastic. So go check that out. they will be... Uh, They'll be on the Relay website, relay.fm slash clockwise. I think our sponsor of this episode, Mac Paul, and their beautiful and useful Clean My Mac X. And uh, Quinn, I'll talk to you in a fortnight. That's a game, That's a game, Stephen. Oh, okay. It's a fancy okay. way of saying in two weeks. I was like, that's a game. What are you talking not about? Not on the iPhone anymore. Or on Android. Oh. Or on the Mac. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks so much for listening. See you later. Bye, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>